Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Hi everyone, this is Meg Ehrenberg, your host for today's episode of Book Rising and the next in our series on the future of radical publishing. Today, I'm delighted to have Mike Ma and Devin Clancy from Toronto-based Between the Lines Press here with me in the studio. Mike is a longtime member of Between the Lines' editorial committee and is also faculty in the Department of Criminology at Kwantlen Polytechnic University in British Columbia, and was also a longtime community advocacy and social justice organizer in, uh, in Toronto. Devin is Between the Lines' design and production manager and an editorial member of the Radical magazine, Upping the Ante. Uh, welcome to you both. Hello, thank you. Hello, Meg. Thank you for inviting us. Um, it's great to be here with you. So um, Mike and Devin, Between the Lines has been publishing nonfiction since 1977 with an explicit focus on social justice movements and books amplifying the struggles of racialized communities, migrants, women, queer folks, and the working class. You've published such international leftist luminaries as Noam Chomsky and Sylvia Federici. And just in 2020, your press co-founded the Radical Publishers Alliance. Uh, so you've been an active part in building a larger coalition of anti-capitalist publishers across the West and um, with some member presses in the global South. Um, could you tell us a bit of the story of Between the Lines, how, how all this began? Sure. Um, so as you mentioned, yeah, the press was founded in 1977 um, and it was uh, an actual collaboration from two existing social movement groups, one being the Development Education Center based in Toronto, which, uh, you know, among many of its activities ran um, uh, an organizational space for meetings, also did adult education, had a community radio station and a leftist library. And the other organization um, based out of Kitchener, Ontario, the Dumont Press Graphics, which is a was a typography collective. Um, so these two organizations kind of emerged in that new left, um, you know, the heady days of the late 60s, early 70s, and um, formed a, a publishing house to kind of um, you know, create a, a space for publishing long form books beyond the pamphlets and things that they were already involved in. So, um, yeah, I think we're a unique publisher in that um, a lot of what we do and how we do it is informed by those uh, initial groups. So we uh, operate with a non-hierarchical um, mandate and all decisions are made collectively by everyone involved in the press. Um, I'm one of four staff members, but we're not the ones that make the decisions. We actually are informed by a broader editorial committee um, in deciding you know, what to publish and, and how to make an impact on uh, the publishing landscape in Canada. Mike, did you wanna expand? Yeah, I mean, I can add that, you know, I, I do think the origins of, of BTL, it comes out of that 70s vibe, right? In the sense of people being involved with the left, but these kind of leftist struggles and then other types of kind of urban resistance and urban organizing um, and social justice organizing. Um, and then over the, I guess, you know, the last 50 years, or if you will, or not 50, but the, 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 the last few decades, 
I think it is morphed right in that sense um, into uh, what it is. It, it started out having a storefront actually, and now we, we're a book publisher. So I think that it's an interesting long kind of trajectory uh, that brought, if you will, BTL to what it is now, which is a, 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 a publisher of nonfiction, in particular, you know, social justice related titles. Um, so I think that that's how it began. But um, uh, but I, I would say it's it still has that, if you will, those beginnings. Because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Devin. There's three members or, or original members, founding members that are still on the editorial board. So we still have, although that that foundation was so long ago, and I joined probably now about 14, 14 years ago. Um, that you know, it, it's it's quite different now, and the politics have shifted, and and if you also the imagination, I think, of struggle and what publishing is has shifted, and so I think that BTL now reflects, I think, the the present, um, although um, it's still connected to that past. And could you talk a little bit about how you go about, you know, uh, choosing what to publish? How <laughs> how do you get your titles? Well, I can I can start, Devin. Uh, I would say that we, you know, as Devin mentioned, we are a collective, right? One of our, uh, you know, we we um, we like to say that we're, we publish books without bosses, right? We're right. We, we're we're a flat organization, and so unlike many publishers, we are actually a collective. So we meet uh, every month now because of the pandemic on Zoom. And, and also because now I'm in Vancouver, but most of the other editorial boards are in Toronto. So Zoom actually works quite well for me, um, where we have a, a fulsome discussion of uh, book proposals and manuscripts um, that, are, uh, that come our way. So it really is an organic process, I think. So, I mean, you know, what is the selection criteria or, or how do we get our books? I think people know about uh, uh, the press uh, and they submit books that, that, that think has a good fit with the, you know, the other books that we publish. Uh, and I guess now we have a certain reputation and um, you know, name for publishing certain titles. And so those types of authors would approach us with, if you will, uh, manuscripts or uh, book proposals. We review them and we have a very, very uh, vigorous, you know, there, there's probably, there's you know, usually about 12 people on the editorial board or more sometimes. Um, and so it's a very, it's a very dynamic conversation. I mean, you know, to be honest, like there's a lot of disagreement about what we should or what we shouldn't publish. Um, and uh, there's lots of agreement about what we should publish and what we shouldn't publish. And so I think that's what's quite exciting about being on the editorial board. And that's why I actually, you know, I, I've, I've been there for a while now, not as long as some of the older members, the founding members. But certainly it's so exciting because there, I don't think there is, you know, another, correct me if I'm wrong, Devin, I don't think there is another nonfiction press in Canada that operates in this way, right? That operates as a collective. What do you think, Devin? Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. Not that I know. Um, I mean, there are other projects that are certainly collective, but maybe not in the book publishing world. But I think that is, like Mike said, one of our strengths where we do have this um, conversation among, um, I think there's 17 of us on total, like as part of the editorial collective. Um, and, you know, it fluctuates how many people are able to join that conversation, but it's quite a representative group of people. Um, there's folks there that 
represent the labor movement, folks um, involved in, um, you know, indie uh, media projects or part of um, journalism, music journalism. Um, of course, folks that are involved in academia, but also a lot of community organizers and people with, um, you know, a foot in both worlds. So I think um, doing things collectively is is like our strength as well as in some cases it can be a challenge, right? To to <laughs> how do you how do you find you know the right direction um, when you have so many cooks in the kitchen? But um, yeah, I, I, I would agree. We, to have, <laughs> we we definitely don't have a hive mind, you know. Like there's a lot of disagreement, and obviously that is act an absolute strength, right? Because people yeah. are not just on on the same page about things, right? And so there's they're you know very diplomatic and and very friendly and constructive debate but but, mm -hmm. but debate nonetheless I, so, I so i think that's really great right because I, I bet you that's absent in a lot of uh you know book publishing where um, there's not and, that vigorous debate yeah. yeah and it's also quite intergenerational um more than mm -hmm. a lot of spaces i've experienced in organizing where we do have those connections that extend all the way back to the 70s um, and those a few folks uh, are still on that committee and, and help make those decisions. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it's it's a really um, unique kind of space for debate. And like the name of the press suggests, you know, it doesn't um, repeat you know a particular line or a particular um, you know political stripe. But we actually kind of take in manuscripts that represent kind of the diversity of leftist perspectives from you know marxist or anarchist takes to um, folks that maybe don't identify with those uh, strains of thinking but nonetheless bring a critical perspective yeah and do you think that that sort of structure as a collective also um what colors your your posture with regard to other uh other presses as well you know i mentioned that you've been involved in building uh coalitions with other presses i'm just curious how you know how the one relates to the other what you know what value there is in 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 building these um larger networks hmm. that's a great question um i well, think it, I, it does did you want to go? Well, I was just going to jump in that I think really, you know, the the what one of the things is I think the 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 resistance of you know and and the fear of big book right <laughs> you know and and big publishers and and I guess you know uh, behemoths like uh, like Amazon. So I think that's that's part of it as well. I think in the sense that um, um, yeah, I don't I, I don't know where I'm going with that, but but I, I think there there is I think a um, a desire to to respond to that, right? Yeah, to, to respond to that kind of hegemony of publishing. Yeah, yeah I would just say that um, our editorial collective is grounded in social movements and always has been. And I think that connection to collectively organizing for a better future has certainly influenced our desire to kind of grow the ecosystem of leftist um, work. Um, so part of that includes the Radical Publishers um, uh, group that we were part of founding and at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and there's, you know, there's other indie media organizations and publications that we partner with a lot, um, whether that's through co-publishing books um, in Canada uh, with AK Press or Pluto Press um, and Verso as well. 
or uh, partnering with um, more grassroots magazines like Briar Patch Magazine, which is also based in Canada. You know, there's, I think we've learned through our practice that um, collectively organizing yeah. is kind of, can bring a, a, a sense of, um, you know, it, it can bring a strength that otherwise wouldn't exist, you know, if you're just sort of isolated. Um, and so approaching kind of the broader world of publishing with that in mind, has been a great um, strength. Yeah, I mean, during the pandemic, just to build off what Devin has said, you know, during the pandemic, but the term mutual aid has come up a lot, right? In terms of thinking about how to survive this, you know, these uncertain times. And I think th this notion of mutual aid, you know, is is a good word to, to to kind of think about why we would want to build if you will uh linkages networks or solidarity with other um, people of like mind and all in in publishing and i think you do have to do that because you know non-profit not not non-profit sorry non-fiction publishing especially with with a concentration or interest in in social justice or left um titles is a precarious business <laughs> so i think you know um i think many presses are always you know on the edge of uh, not publishing anymore right so i think I, I think we do have to build if you will a, an international network of people who support each other um and who come to each other's aid i think and, and also just lend support and 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 um and and share ideas, right? I think that's that's really the important thing about how to how to actually survive actually these uncertain times. Yeah. So I think um, that th that's actually I think I, I see it as a, a, a strategy for survival, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, since you since you brought up Amazon, I was going to ask you, you know, how <laughs> how is a small uh, anti-capitalist press you you <laughs> pick on these, you know, these corporate? Uh, uh, I mean, booksellers and corporate <laughs> publishers that that are increasingly powerful. I mean, I think even you know, yeah. in in this period of the pandemic, have have exponentially grown their uh, their power. Um, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a question that can be answered. Yeah. Devin? Um... Sure. Um, I would say that, um, you know, it's part of the contradictions of publishing, right? Um, you're going to be competing with, or at least kind of to some degree, um, have your toes inside the kind of behemoths of Amazon or Chapters Indigo in Canada or you know, all the other kind of major mega box stores uh, or, you know, delivery services. Um, and so we sort of reluctantly um, do host our books on those services, but I think in our own, and, and the reason we do that is because, you know, as much as we want to um, stay true to our, um, you know, beliefs in terms of, you know, collectively running things, collectively owning things, um, we want to meet people where they're at and you know amazon is a fact of modern life so you know we reluctantly engage in those but i think in our own practice we're trying to build up partnerships with local bookstores that kind of embody mm -hmm. the ideals that we publish about um and uh you know partner with other radical uh publishers to kind of cross promote each other's titles and direct people 
either to the publisher themselves or to their local bookstore and to try to support an alternative beyond those kinds of um, mega corporate approaches to publishing. I also think, you know, many years ago, we published a title called No One Makes You Shop at Walmart. And it makes me, you know, that that title jumps into my head because I think, yeah, no one makes you shop at Amazon. But the reality of the situation is that many people do shop through online vendors, especially now because of the pandemic and isolation and, and, and stores being closed. Right? So I think there has been a push and certainly we've been absolutely very kinetically pushed online. We're meeting online right now, right? So I, I do think the online world is a reality and online shopping is a reality. Um, and so if you're not in that, if you will, vendor space, then you, you won't survive, I think. So I, I do think that everyone has to be part of um, online, you know, has, has, to have, has to have some foot in the online, you know, ecosphere and also participate, I think, with big bad book, right? Like in the sense that we, I don't know how to resist it. You know, we do sell our titles, you know, uh, electronic titles, for instance, or eBooks through our website. But I do think people are buying those titles also, you know, um, through other vendors, right? Like Amazon mm -hmm. you know, and, and the physical books as well, right? So I think, it, you know, th there's no clear answer to it, I think. Um, I mean, how can you, yes, you can, you can decide not to shop at Walmart, but yeah, I, I, <laughs> I just think that, that there's many people in the world that might think, that's the only place to get stuff and so if you if you want to reach them you have to offer things in those spaces as well yeah it, there's i yeah it's a conundrum it's an aporia i, I don't think it's a you know it's, a, it's not something we can uh, pass through or fix i think not not from our perspective yeah well maybe another way to approach the question is is sort of what what would it take what would need to change for for independent radical publishing to thrive um you know what would a um what does the next decade or 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 a few decades look like um in a world where those um those presses are thriving um i would say that um you know the challenges to publishing are also the challenges that people face generally so um, gentrification is, I think, one of the major challenges to operating a successful publishing business, but also, you know, a successful independent bookstore, for instance. So, you know, the, the very same challenges that we're facing in social movements are the ones that are affecting, uh, you know, us as, as trying to run a business. Um, so I think, you know, collective organizing is the, the best, um, you know, to struggle to make it the conditions better is the best that we can do. And struggle is always better when it's collective and it's broad based. So I think growing, yeah, trying to grow um, uh, the connections between publishers, but then also the connections between publishers and bookstores that are outside of those systems is probably the best we can do. But at the same time, we have to push for um, greater access to you know, accessible, and affordable space in our cities. Mm -hmm. um, this is a, an issue with social movements as well. You know, 
more and more our spaces for co for coming together are, are being kind of taken out from under our feet and instead being replaced by these sort of you know mega condo structures that's kind of the seems to be what's happening in Toronto but you know across the world you know and all these global cities are being progressively colonized by the mega rich and and um, it's becoming harder and harder to have an alternative space so you know fighting for greater supports for small independent businesses is one plank of, of making the future better and, and for carving out space for radical um, folks um, and I think working together to try to yeah cross promote and 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 get our perspectives out into the world as much as possible yeah. You know, I, Devin, you, you bring up an interesting question, you know, this notion of radical space. And I'm just thinking of the classroom I was just teaching last night. And so, you know, I'm trying to think like, you know, I teach at Kwantlen Polytechnic University, which is basically a, 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 a school whose population is made up of, I'd say, working class. I mean, I, I know it's a, a, a kind of an older term of reference, but it's still useful, you know, working class or even low socioeconomic status, most of my students, right? So these are students who typically uh, really think about, should I buy this book <laughs> for the course? Or can I just like borrow it from the library? Or, or maybe I don't even need it at all. Maybe I can find an, an electronic version of it online, you know, illegally somewhere. And then I could just download that book and then uh, I don't have to buy it. So I'm thinking like, how do we make that a radical space, right? So it's not just about like make, absolutely I agree with you that we have to make these spaces available and, that, and that's I think one of the mandates of BTL. But at the same time, how do you bring BTL into the classroom, into more conventional spaces, right? That are not radical, right? This is the academy, right? This is a, a place where um, we charge very high tuition for people who can't afford it. Uh, you know? And so it's a business, right? Uh, it's a non-radical space. So how do you how do you bring the radical into the classroom? Um, I, I mean, through the ideas that you're teaching, but certainly also but how do you access those ideas through books? And so it, it you know it, it the the question also of like the cost of books, access to books, and whether students can have act you know can get their hands on those books that that becomes a big issue actually for um for for these spaces where you're trying to expand people's uh, consciousness or, or you're trying to capture their imagination or even try to explain what capitalism is right the, uh, or, and and what what ways in which we can resist it that that is difficult to do i think in a classroom and so books help to do that but Books also cost money, so I mean, I, I don't. I, this is a kind of unthought out uh, idea, but it it makes me think that the, the there is a there is also a contradiction in the classroom where so many of these books are used, right? In the sense of it being this um, for profit um, space where we're trying to bring these kind of anti capitalist ideas into the space, while at the same time trying to sell books. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a complicated question, yeah. Making, yeah. making space is the complicated, yeah. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. And, um, you know, the university as a corporation is, you know, a in many ways it's kind of mirrors the 
the way that you know Amazons and the other yeah. corporations have taken over and are producing students as you know a product of the end writer. They're selling a certain um, yeah. product, which um, again, like Amazon, you know, we're we're involved in that project to some degree. Although I think in our practice, we're always um, aware, cognizant of the fact that books can be extremely expensive, especially when it mm-hmm. comes to academic work. Um, so at Between the Lines, we're always, you know, trying to keep costs down as much as possible uh, from a production standpoint. So we, um, you know, we use as much recycled paper as possible, some of the cheapest stocks that we can access that are recyclable. Um, but at the same time, we always try to print union, union shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's the, the contradictions inherent in capitalism are inherent in the way that we publish. But mm-hmm. some of the ways that we've tried to mitigate that is by keeping prices down as low as we can on paperbacks and um, also selling cheaper e- ebooks for mm-hmm. folks. And I think um, one of the promising elements of ebook production is that you can actually create a much more accessible um, yeah. document that is accessible both in terms of cost and in terms of um, gaining access to it online, but also in a very practical sense, accessible for people with print disabilities or other um, disabilities. So I think when we're thinking about radical change for independent publishers, all of these questions about accessibility in the context of capitalism, I think are essential and trying to make your um, the ideas as you know accessible as possible as forefront is, is in the for, is in the front of mind for us at between the lines. One thing that that I'd like to share with you, Meg, and, and your listeners, is that you know at the beginning of the pandemic, we actually did something kind of weird. Like we jumped into a weird experiment. We published an ebook that was pay what you can, mm-hmm. um, and it was actually, if you will, I guess a group or crowdsourced. Uh, volume about, about the pandemic. So it was called Sick of the System. And so um, it was tr- getting authors that were that we had published before and other authors that we haven't write short pieces, which which we as actually, I think it's the first time we've done this, Devin, we as the kind of editorial committee, we actually put it together um, and uh, made it available as an ebook. And then you would go to our website and then it would be you know, there would be a suggested price, but you can, you can, you can buy it for like one cent, right. Or, or, or zero cents if you want. And so I think that was weirdly successful because, you know, many people did, I think, see it as a way of, you know, paying, saying, well, I could pay more than, you know, 10 cents. So I'll pay $10 for that. Right. So I think is, I mean, you know, it, it also, I think it was in the, in the height of the pandemic, it, we published it, I think, in correct me if I'm wrong, Devin, April 2020. It was the fastest book ever put together. I think we put it from start to finish. We put it together in like four weeks um, or or six weeks. It's very, very, I mean, you you know, in terms of publishing, that's crazy. (laughs) That's that's madness, right? But we did it. And I think we want to do it because we want to respond to the pandemic and and all of the crisis that were, were happening. But there's a great example. I use that book for teaching. And I said to my students, you know, you can pay nothing or you can pay what, I don't know what they paid in yet. But I think they, I think students, you know, again, I teach in this kind of working class university. I think students appreciated that there was this thing that wasn't, you know, 
wasn't something that you could buy at Amazon, you know, that, that you could purchase independently through this kind of pay what you can uh, system. So I, I, you know, I think that was quite innovative. It may, it may not happen ever again, but certainly it was an experiment and, and it, it certainly made me feel good that we were doing something, you know, out of the box and it was you know, innovative. Yeah. Yeah. And it was successful in that. I think people, you know, on balance did uh, pay for the work of the collection, yeah. the volume, you know, many people didn't pay anything, which was yeah. totally great, but also many people paid over and above um, yeah. the list price. Um, so it's great. I think it's an example of, um, you know, readers seeing the, the, the value in a project and, and kind of, uh, bringing what they could and what they thought was reasonable to that. Um, and we did end up um, donating those proceeds to the Migrant Rights Network, which uh, is an organization that uh, fights for the rights of um, you know, migrant workers and non-status folks in Canada. So yeah, I, th I think that is a good example of, of some of the more novel ways that we can reach audiences and, and maintain a sort of an accessible um, uh, publishing program. Yeah, I'm, I'm just so proud of that volume and, and also even more proud that we we donated it to uh, um, to migrant workers, um, you know, solidarity, basically. Very cool. Um, so sick of the system. What what other uh, what other BTL radical titles should we should we all be reading? <laughs> Well, what about that mining, Devin, maybe tell Meg about our, our recent mining work. Yeah, I think this is kind of an interesting um, sort of full circle moment for the press. So in 77, the first book that we published was um, a sort of a critique of Inco, which is a big mining company at the time called um, The Big Nickel. And so it was a, a, a sort of scathing critique of Inco's um, work both running a mine in Sudbury and also kind of internationally the, the mining corporations effects on on countries in Latin America in particular Guatemala. Um, so fast fast forward to this past fall we recently published a book called Testimonio. Um, it's about Canadian mining in the aftermath of genocides in Guatemala and it's an edited volume by Catherine Nolan and Graham Russell but they essentially cover um, the experience of indigenous communities in Guatemala fighting against um, this sort of uh, genocidal regimes of their governments and the complicity of, of mining projects in that violence. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a really powerful story that um, speaks to the contemporary neo-colonialism in Guatemala and Canadian complicity in that. Uh, which I think is an important uh, uh, contribution to challenging this notion of Canada as a peacemaker or as a polite nation, et cetera. You know, most right. of, of the um, most wealthiest mining corporations are headquartered in Toronto and make, uh, you know, lots and lots of profits on the destruction of Indigenous homelands across the globe. So I would say definitely check out Testimonio and it kind of follows up on that strain of uh, anti-imperial, anti-colonial books that we've published since the very beginning. And I thought, you know, and also maybe your your um, listeners might also be interested in as some of the backstory of people Google testimonial, the, they, 
you know, and do a bit of a deeper dive, they'll see that it was actually a, a manuscript that was supposed to be published by another press. But because of certain fears, legal fears, they, they dropped that book and that's why we picked it up. So there's that story as well in the sense that we, again, another proud moment, I think, for our press that we, we came and kind of, if not saved it, certainly helped resurrect this manuscript and, and published it when it was actually, you know, it was, it was dropped by another press. So um, because of fear of legal action, right? Because, mm -hmm. uh, because mm -hmm. it's a critique of, of mining, right? In particular, uh, certain uh, corporations. So that, that's certainly one title, I think, a testimony. I'd, I'd also plug uh, a forthcoming book that we're really excited about. Um, so coming this April, we're publishing Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, which is an edited volume about abolition organizing in Canada. Um, so it's just a really great um, collection that features a lot of important community organizations, including the uh, Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project, the Defund the Police Coalition in Montreal, um, as well as the Freelands Free People Project um, based out of Treaty 6 in the prairies. So it's, it's um, you know, that's just a small snapshot of what's included in the volume, but I think it's uh, sort of building up a, a kind of rigorous study of, of how do you actually bring abolition politics to the mainstream and how can you struggle for the, um, decarceration and, and the sort of the destruction of the prison industrial complex and of course how that affects in particular black and indigenous communities in Canada. So I, I definitely encourage your listeners to check out what's forthcoming um, and I, I think um, it's an important contribution to that field of research. And also you know again for your listeners you know social justice and left politics doesn't always have to be dire and um, you know uh, uh, serious because we also publish graphic novels uh, or graphic. Um, uh, they're not novels. What I'm saying they're they're graphic books. Um, but we have a we have a book called Wonder Drug, which is basically a, a, a graphic illustrated history of LSD. Yeah, so um, that's also available on, on our website. Yeah, so I think we also publish. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that I think we also publish things that I think are visually interesting to look at too. So not just, um, um, you know, we, we, we print books with pictures too, I guess that's, that's, <laughs> what, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so if, if some of your listeners want to buy picture books, uh, we have those as well. And we, you know, and I think Wonder, Wonder Drug is a great, uh, is a great book. Right on. Um, Mike, Devin, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to talk to you both. Thank you so Thanks. much for inviting us. Yeah, it's Thanks been a great conversation. Us. Thank you. Yeah.